all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I think what we're trying to understand today is what happens between one important word right near the beginning of what we read and a very important word that's right at the end. That important word right near the beginning is grumbling. And the word at the end is joy. Grumbling and joy. They were grumbling because Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And Dr. Fred Craddock says that's because in the old days when you ate with somebody, it meant total acceptance. Just a few months ago, Gail and I were on vacation in Italy. I'd been reading a book written by graduate students of Yale University called Let's Go Italy. I found these university students do a great job of pointing out good places to eat where you can get good ice cream, gelati over there. And they had recommended one particular restaurant in Torino and another in Milano that had the same name, same kind of restaurant, Italian of course, but more like a cafeteria except a really fancy one. You could walk to different sections in this beautiful restaurant. You could see fish dishes or you could see beef dishes or chicken, or you could go to the pastas, or you could go to salads. And there was always a section in both of those cities called pane, bread. The Italians love bread, all kinds of bread. And it was a big, beautiful display for pane. But there is a word that we have carried over into English that they have, cum pane, with bread. In English, it's companion. A companion is someone with whom you've broken bread and eaten. To eat with someone is full acceptance. So the righteous ones were grumbling. Look at this guy. He lets all these despicable people sit down and eat at the same table with him. In Luke's gospel, he tells immediately three stories to those who are grumbling. One is a story about a lost sheep. 
and then a story about a lost coin, and then a story about a lost boy, the lost boy we call the prodigal son. These three stories just boom, 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 one right behind the other. And all three stories have things in common. Something gets lost. Somebody searches diligently. The thing that was lost is now found, and there's great joy. But not only is there joy on the part of the one who finds, he or she calls in neighbors and friends, and they come and have a party. And up in heaven, God and all the saints are having just as big a party. Great joy, not like the grumblers. See? This word grumble is the same word that's used in the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Scriptures when 70 great Jewish scholars got together down in northern Africa and translated their Scriptures into Greek when after the time of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and Alexander the Great, Greek had become the language of the Mediterranean world. And this is the same word Luke uses here that those scholars used in Exodus to describe their mothers and fathers who had been freed after 400 years of slavery and are grumbling. We had it better in Egypt, they tell Moses. Out here there's nothing to eat and there's nothing to drink. And God was not thrilled with their attitude and neither is Jesus. So, We've dealt with the prodigal son a couple of months ago. We're going to concentrate on the other two stories Luke puts right here. One is about a fairly rich man in his time, if he had a hundred sheep. Scholars say that in Jesus' little hometown, they believed no one had a hundred sheep, that it was a little village of maybe 150 or 200 people, but every person in this little village, when Jesus was a boy, was living on subsistence, which means... If the daddy was asked to do some kind of work one day, he got a coin called a denarius, and he could feed his family. If he didn't get chosen to work, he didn't get a coin, and his family went to bed hungry. To have a hundred sheep was pretty big, and yet this shepherd leaves 99 and goes to look for the one that was lost. Dr. Fred Craddock said, Now, if you think the 90 and 9 were safely tucked away for the night, you've been listening to an old gospel song instead of to the gospel of Luke. In an old gospel song, it says, The 90 and 9 that safely lay. Uh, not in the gospel. Matthew tells this story, and he says, The shepherd left him up on the mountain while he went looking for the one who had wandered away. Matthew says, Luke just says he was lost and that he left them out in the wilderness, which means the desert. He left the 99 because he was so concerned about the one that was lost. This woman, much more like someone who lived in Jesus' hometown, Gail and I have seen these archaeological digs. Many of the houses just had one room. The bathroom was outside. One room. This one room had no windows. They didn't have glass yet. It had not even a door, and the floor was made of dirt. The lamps were not very big, made out of clay. They held a little bit of olive oil and one little wick. They wouldn't make very much light. 
So this woman would almost be down on her knees searching in this dark little house of hers, sweeping, sweeping, looking for that coin. That coin. Scholars say the word here is drachma. It's the only time it's used in all of the New Testament because in the time of Caesar Nero, he replaced the drachma with a denarius. And by the time most of the New Testament got written, everybody had the denarius coin. So that's the one that's used over and over. One day's wages. Wow, this woman had saved a long time to have ten. She needed all of them, and one was lost. Luke is wonderful about saying how important women were to Jesus and the church. Matthew tells about the man who lost a sheep, but Luke immediately says, wait, there was a woman who lost a coin, and only he tells that story. They have the story of Zacchaeus up in a tree and Jesus saying, come down, I'm going to your house today. People grumbling. That's not only a tax collector, this Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector. And Jesus said, really? I thought he was a son of Abraham. And when Jesus saw a woman bent over so far, stooped in the synagogue one day, and he healed her, told her to stand up straight. And some grumbled. He said, she's a daughter of Abraham. Luke over and over says women, women, women were so important to Jesus and to the early church. And he tells stories about wonderful women. This woman searches and searches. And it also says here when she calls her friends, these, this word friend is feminine in Greek. So she called her women friends around the neighborhood and said, Come, I found my coin. And everybody's hooping and hollering and having a great time. Okay, I have four things here. Number one. Have we lost something? Have we lost something? I was a history major in undergraduate school, but we studied more history of Western civilization. I really didn't know much about South Africa and apartheid until I had a course on preaching values in contemporary literature, and one of the popular books back then was written by Alan Payton called Cry the Beloved Country. It stirred me. It was a white man writing about the breaking hearts in the apartheid situation in South Africa. And then he wrote another one called Too Late the Fallerope. Fallerope was a beautiful bird in South Africa, but it's really a story about a young man and his father. And this young man who's fallen in love with a black woman. And it's, it's so divisive and so much hate. It's terrible. Too late, too late the fallerope. But there are still people today struggling, even though apartheid has officially been out, and black and white are trying to learn to live with each other. There is a contemporary playwright. Uh, his name is Ethel Fugard. He has a play on Broadway right now called The Train Driver. It mostly features two men on stage. It's a really terrible-looking place where they are. First one you see is a an African black man. This is a graveyard. Mr. Fugard calls it a graveyard. He doesn't want you to think about cemetery with green grass and beautiful flowers and trails, maybe. No, this is a graveyard where black people who've died and have no family to claim their bodies are buried. 
And this older man is there burying the bodies of unclaimed black people who died. And then one night, a white man shows up in the graveyard. He has been the train driver. We would call him an engineer. One night, he was driving the train when suddenly as the train came around a bend and that strong light flashed down the track, immediately in front of the train, a young black woman holding a baby in her arms, standing squarely in front of the train. He screeched the brakes. He did everything possible. He couldn't stop that train in time and hit her, killed them both. No one came and claimed them. She was buried in the graveyard with her child. White men can't get this out of his mind. He can't get her out of his mind. Why was she so hopeless that she thought this was the best thing for her and her child to stand in front of an oncoming train? What had made her feel that way about herself? Had he and other white people had any part in her feeling less about her own worth than she should have ever? He says to this graveyard caretaker there, this guy who buries people, there was dark deep inside of her, but why? And then he says, now I'm afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of the dark, are you? What have we lost? Some say we've lost civility. We don't treat each other very well. We use unkind words, particularly for people we don't really know. We assume we don't like, that we don't want good to come to them. What have we lost? Innocence? Some of our children? What have we lost? A job? Income? Hope for a better day for our children? Maybe our own souls. What have we lost? Number two, this is a story about people who just won't quit looking. A shepherd who just won't quit till he finds that lost sheep. A woman who just will not quit till she finds that coin. And of course, every parable of Jesus is about the kingdom of God. Finally, the one who searches for the lost is God. It's God who's looking for the lost sheep. It's God who's looking for the lost coin. But we have to look for him. We are supposed to look for him even as he looks for us. When Gail and I go to Paris, and we've had the privilege of being there, we really prefer the kinds of paintings that by and large they have over in the Louvre. We enjoy the great paintings of the Renaissance uh, time. But we cross the river and we see also the paintings of contemporary expressionist art and so on. And one of those that I liked better than some others was Henri Matisse. When we were in New York City just about 18 months ago and saw some of our great museums there, we saw the museum where two Jewish sisters had collected this great art. They loved impressionistic art. They bought so many of Matisse's paintings. He came to New York City and asked if there was anything in particular they'd like for him to paint. He was 71 years old in 1941 when the Germans were overrunning his country. And then he was diagnosed with cancer. 
there weren't nearly so many treatments for cancer in 1941 as there are today, and he had major surgery to try to staunch this disease. He went to Nice, down on the Mediterranean, to try to recuperate. Advertised in the local paper for someone who could do nursing services for him during the day. And a young woman, 21 years old, applied for that job. She spent most of the next year being nursed to him during the daytime and going back the next morning to see if he was all right. And when he got better and moved out of Nice, she, a few months later, entered the convent in a little village just up the hill above Nice. A few years later, her convent was about to build a new little chapel looking out from the side of the hill over the sea and this big city down below. And she thought of Mr. Matisse. She wrote to him and asked if there was any chance he would contribute a painting to their chapel. He remembered her kindnesses, and he wrote back he would love to. By the time he got there, he was 77, confined to a wheelchair. They had to literally tape to his wrist a stick with a brush so that he could paint. He spent four years there painting three colors, everything he painted, the stained glass windows he designed all in just three colors. Yellow, because he loved to see the sun rise, and then saw it set in the evening. Another day, a gift of God. Greens, he loved looking up into the hills above Nice, where this little village sat, where the convent was, and blues. Blues of the Mediterranean down below, but all good Roman Catholics know the Holy Mother is always dressed in blue. And this was the chapel of the rosary where nuns knelt every morning and every evening and fingered the beads and prayed for the divine guidance and direction of God. Henri Matisse said it was the best work he had ever done, masterpiece of his life, to be there four years among those nuns decorating their chapel. God's looking for you. You need to be looking also for him. Number three, when you find there's supposed to be great joy, great joy. In Italy, Gail and I discovered that sometimes religious communities not only built a beautiful church, they built a bell tower, separate building. That's true in Pisa. It's the bell tower that leans. The church is still beautiful. It's where Galileo was one Sunday afternoon when he saw the chandelier moving from the wind, gradually moving through the church from open doors at either end and figured out the swing of a pendulum, gravity, the fact that the earth could not possibly be flat. It had to be round. On the other side of this beautiful church in Pisa is a baptistry, a whole building built around the baptismal font. That's true in Florence, too. The beautiful cathedral in Florence, beautiful church of Santa Croce, the Holy Cross, a bell tower, a baptistry, a whole separate building for the baptismal font. Built in 1050, this one in Florence. Almost 400 years later, the people in Florence thought, you know, 
this is such an important building, it should have really fancy, beautiful doors. And they conducted a contest to see who could design the most beautiful doors for their baptistry, and Lorenzo Gaberti won. He spent more than 20 years, two doors. Two doors. They have 10 panels. They're done in bronze. The detail of these 10 stories from the Hebrew Scriptures, like Joseph's brothers arriving in Egypt, are so exact that you can tell the difference in the trees by their leaves. 1990, they took the doors down. Pollution from automobiles was beginning to eat away at this bronze, now 500 years old itself. And so they moved them into a special place. And for 22 years, they've been restoring them. Last week, they put them on display again, not back on the baptistry out in the weather, but in a museum. They have put replicas on the doors out at the cathedral. And they are beautifully done. Gail and I saw them just a few years ago. They're beautifully done with lasers to get them as nearly like the original as possible, but of course not quite like the original. We saw them first in 1982. Well, when they'd been hanging on this, these doors almost 100 years, a young artist named Michelangelo saw them. And he stood there studying the detail and finally said, Porta del Paradiso, the gates of paradise, the gates of paradise. And what do they lead to? The baptismal font. The gates of paradise lead us to the waters of baptism where God finds us and we know ourselves found of God. Finally, as joyful as the shepherd was, as the woman was with finding her coin, Jesus said there's greater joy in heaven. I want you to stop and think about something. For 2,000 years, some Christians have thought their most important job was finding lost Jews. But Jesus is telling this story to Pharisees who were really good people. They were trying so hard to do the right things, and they were afraid Jesus was leading people the wrong way. They were trying to make their holy day something really special and set apart, and they didn't quite get it that he healed people on that special day. One of my professors really believed Jesus was himself a Pharisee and that every conversation he had with them was sort of a quarrel between friends and brothers. Paul said near the end of his life, I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. There were 17 groups of Jews we can identify in that first century, and 16 of them finally died out. The only ones that survived were the Pharisees. Our dear friend, Rabbi Charles Sherman, Nancy, descendants of the Pharisaic movement, Rabbi Mark Fitzerman, his wife, Descendants of the Pharisaic movement, all the Jews you know who do so much for Tulsa, the Kaisers and the Zaras and the Schustermans and on and on, descendants of Pharisees, they're the 99 sheep who were not lost. They're the nine coins not lost. They just grumble sometimes, as do Christians. 
And Jesus said, one who's repentant, who knows he or she needs to be turned and sent in a right direction. Boy, when they turn and they move in a right direction, when they turn and return to the God who breathed in them the breath of life, God's really happy. Last month, the great Roman Catholic cardinal died. He was Chinese. His sort of anglicized name, uh, Cardinal Paul Shen. He grew up as a little boy in communist China, swept over by the communists after World War II. He felt called to be an altar boy in the Catholic Church. He felt called to the priesthood, later was made a bishop. When Pope John Paul II was presiding in Rome, he had a huge synod and asked hundreds of bishops to come to Rome. Paul Sean wanted Despi to go. The communists would not allow him to leave the country. So even in absentia, Pope John Paul II named him a cardinal. And he got to vote on the election of the new pope, Benedict XVI, when John Paul II died. Now Paul Sean has died after battling cancer for six years. During that six-year period, he's been interviewed a number of times and asked about his illness. He was told six years ago, we don't have a cure for what you have. We can hopefully put you in remission for a time. It will come back. We may be able to put you in remission for a time. It will come back. So he had lived six years knowing that death was not too far away at any given time. He said it really opened doors for me to at least two groups. Really? He said, yes, the intellectuals. Now, let me help you with that just a little bit. Gail and I have been in China, too, and we were in five different cities. They were so far apart that one guide couldn't go with us everywhere. We had a different guide in each city, all of them under 30 years of age, two females, three guys. They did not know what I do. Gail always, please, please don't tell them what you do. They always treat us differently, you know. So I didn't tell anybody what I did. But each city, I would find a quiet moment when I would simply say to this young guide, are you a part of any faith community? And all five of them gave me the exact same answer. Oh, no. I have been to the university I am no longer ignorant nor superstitious. And Cardinal Sean said, I've been able to witness to the intellectuals that I too have been to the university. Neither am I ignorant nor superstitious, but I know a God who created the heavens and the earth. Second, he said, condemn prisoners. They've been told by the Chinese government they're about to put them to death. And I can go into their cells and say, I'm living with a death sentence myself. I'm living with a death sentence myself. Could I visit with you? And they've listened to me and talked to me. And then they said, well, Cardinal, are you afraid to die? And he said, oh, no. It will be falling back into the loving arms of God.